Last Sunday, we began a special Advent sermon series. Advent means arrival or coming. And the season of Advent is a time when we meditate on Jesus' first coming 2,000 years ago and also his second coming, which hasn't yet happened. In the Bible, we find signs connected to both of those arrivals. Last week, we looked at the sign of Jesus' second coming, mentioned in Matthew chapter 24. Today and over the next two Sundays, we'll be looking at signs connected to Jesus' first coming, beginning with the sign mentioned in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. You can see we've printed the whole of Isaiah chapter 7 in the service program, but we're going to be focusing on verses 10 through 14. That's our passage for today, and I'll read that now. So that's on page 10 in the service program. Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 through 14. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. This is the word of the Lord. Well, please do keep that page open because we'll be referring to that Bible passage and other parts of Isaiah chapter 7 during the sermon. Let's bow our heads now and pray for God's Spirit to do his life-transforming work through his word. Psalm 119 verse 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. Father, we pray that we would find your word to be just as you say it is, a lamp to our feet to keep us from stumbling and a light for our path to show us the way. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Out of all of Christianity's teachings, the virgin birth seems to be the one that atheists most often choose to attack. The doctrine of the virgin birth states that Jesus was conceived while his mother Mary was still a virgin and born while Mary was still a virgin. And atheists view that teaching as a prime target. For example, in his book, The God Delusion, Richard Dawkins says, The 19th century is the last time when it was possible for an educated person to admit to believing in the virgin birth without embarrassment. Dawkins doesn't stop there. He goes on, When pressed, many educated Christians today are too loyal to deny the virgin birth, but it embarrasses them because their rational minds know it is absurd. Richard Dawkins uses the virgin birth as his Exhibit A when he argues that Christianity is just too improbable to believe. 
but Professor Dawkins is mistaken. The virgin birth isn't a fragile point in Christianity's defenses. Far from it. Instead of weakening our faith, the virgin birth should strengthen it. According to today's passage, the virgin birth serves as a sign. It operates rather like our Good Shepherd church sign that we put out on West 72nd Street on Sunday mornings. That sign helps people find our church. The first time Betsy and I visited the Triad Theatre to see if it might be a suitable location for a church, a suitable venue. The first time we visited it, we walked past the entrance four times, at least four times. Where the theatre was supposed to be, all we could see was a Mediterranean restaurant. It was only on our fifth walk past that we realised the theatre was one floor above street level. Putting a church sign outside on the sidewalk stops other people from having the same experience. It's similar with the virgin birth of Jesus. God didn't want people to miss the birth of his son. He didn't want people to walk past it, not realising it had happened. And so 700 years beforehand, God spoke through the prophet Isaiah, predicting that his promised king would have a birth like no other birth. At the time the prediction was made, God said the virgin birth would be a sign to the house of David. And that's our first heading this morning, a sign to the house of David. Later we'll think about how the virgin birth is a sign to all the world. But before we get there, we need to think about what the sign meant at the time when Isaiah announced it. Please look down to verse 11, there on page 10 of the service program. God is speaking to King Ahaz through the prophet Isaiah. And God makes an amazingly generous proposal to Ahaz. I'll read from verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. Think how many people would have loved to have had that opportunity. Ask for a sign, God says to Ahaz, any sign. We see God's love for Ahaz in that generous offer. God wants Ahaz to stand firm in faith. He's just said at the end of verse 9, If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. And so God lovingly offers Ahaz whatever sign he wants to help him believe and stand firm in that faith. Let's see how Ahaz responds. Verse 12, But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. At first glance, that might look like a fairly solid answer. It seems respectful. But give it more thought and it becomes clear that Ahaz's answer isn't respectful, it's rebellious. God wasn't laying a trap for Ahaz. He was lovingly inviting him to ask for a sign to strengthen his faith. By rejecting that offer, Ahaz was rejecting God, thrusting God away from him. The Bible scholar Alec Matia makes this comment on verse 12, to refuse a sign 
is proof that one does not want to believe. Ahaz demonstrated himself to be a willfully unbelieving man. End quote. In verse 13, Isaiah says that Ahaz is trying God's patience. Trying or testing a person's patience is what school kids sometimes do in class. They misbehave, 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 testing the teacher's patience until the teacher no longer shows patience and all the kids involved get a detention. It's like that with Ahaz and God's patience is about to run out. Ahaz is in the last chance saloon there in verses 10 and 11. Whether he knows it or not, he's in the last chance saloon. If he had only responded rightly, he would have received a faith-strengthening sign, but he responds rebelliously, and God then declares judgment on Ahaz and his family line and his nation. Let's look down to verse 17. Isaiah tells Ahaz, The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. A very bad time. He will bring the king of Assyria. Assyria's campaign against Judah will leave it ruined. In verse 23, Isaiah says, In that day, in every place where there were a thousand vines worth a thousand silver shekels, there will be only briars and thorns. And that's the context. That's the setting for God's virgin birth prediction. It's a prediction surrounded by judgment. The prediction is good news because the child born to a virgin will be named Emmanuel, according to verse 14. Emmanuel means God with us. That's astonishingly good news. But it comes wrapped in judgment, surrounded by judgment. There's very little hope for the nation of Judah in the rest of chapter 7, aside from the coming of Emmanuel. And that fits perfectly with the historical record for Judah, for the nation of Judah, from Ahaz onward. There is very little hope for the nation until Emmanuel comes. Yes, there are one or two good kings after King Ahaz, such as Hezekiah and Josiah, but even they reign under the shadow of God's judgment. Listen, for example, to what God says to good King Josiah in 2 Kings 22. God says, Because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before the Lord, you will be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster I am going to bring on this place. Josiah ruled under the shadow of God's judgment. From Ahaz onwards, a downward spiral is underway right up until the promised virgin birth. The Bible commentator Leon Morris puts the point like this. When Emmanuel was born, he inherited only the memory of a kingdom and a non-existent crown, and it was Ahaz's fault. End quote. Now, skeptics treat the virgin birth 
as a myth invented by the early church to give Christianity a boost. Skeptics point out that other religions also feature virgin births, and skeptics argue that the early church must have decided to bring their religion into line with other religions at that time. But the virgin birth wasn't invented by the early church. It was predicted centuries beforehand by the prophet Isaiah. And on top of that, it wasn't a pleasant prediction designed to make people feel good about their religion. Now, what we've seen from Isaiah 7 is that the virgin birth prediction was wrapped up in a message that made people's hearts sink. It was a prediction of good news wrapped in bad news. The royal house of David would suffer God's judgment until the virgin was with child. That was a message the people in Isaiah's day didn't want to hear because they would have to live through the bad times before the good time came. So this prediction wasn't invented by humans to puff up their human religion. It was given by God to put humans in their place. It has God's fingerprints all over it. Before we move on to the second half of the sermon, it's important to address something you may have heard about the translation of Isaiah 7 verse 14. You may have been told that the English word virgin is a mistranslation of the Hebrew word used by Isaiah in that verse, verse 14. And there is a half-truth in that argument because biblical Hebrew doesn't have a word that simply means virgin. It doesn't have a word for a woman who has never had sexual relations with a man. But out of the Hebrew words available to him, Isaiah used the one that came closest to our word virgin. The word he used meant a marriageable young woman. A marriageable young woman. And in Old Testament times, when there were very strict laws prohibiting sex before marriage, a marriageable young woman would have been a virgin. So I suppose Bible translators could have said, when they translated chapter 7 verse 14, the marriageable young woman, who in that society would have been a virgin, will be with child. They could have translated it like that, but I think you'll agree it's much better to encapsulate all of that in just one word, virgin. The virgin will be with child. That's the best way to translate what Isaiah is getting across. And that's a reassuring conclusion for Christians, but it's also a conclusion that makes sense when you think about the meaning of verse 14. It says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. It wouldn't be a sign if a sexually active woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. It's only a sign if it's a virgin who gives birth. The theologian Donald MacLeod explains it like this. The birth was to be a sign. A sign required some unusual circumstance, and what more unusual than that the child should be born from one who was a virgin. We've been thinking about the prediction of the virgin birth in its 
original setting. It was a sign for the house of David. Let's now turn to the second half of the sermon, a sign for all the world, a sign for all the world. As I said earlier, our church has a sign. It's out on West 72nd Street as I speak. And our hope is that it will catch people's eye and direct them to our meeting. The virgin birth had the same kind of point to it. It was a sign to catch the eye of the house of David in the first instance, but it's also a sign given by God to catch the eye of the world. Luke tells us that his gospel was written for a patron named Theophilus. Theophilus was almost certainly a Gentile, a Greek man. And Luke in his gospel spends more time on the subject of the virgin birth than any of the other gospel writers. Luke wanted this eye-catching sign to do its work, its eye-catching work in the life of Theophilus and all the other readers of his gospel, wherever they might be, across the world. The virgin birth is a sign given to stir up faith among those who do not yet believe and to strengthen the faith of believers. There are three main ways in which this sign strengthens our faith, and we'll look at each in turn from now to the end of the sermon. First, the virgin birth should strengthen our faith because it happened as predicted. It was predicted in advance, and the prediction was fulfilled. The process of prediction and fulfillment is faith strengthening. Speaking for myself, if the Bible didn't have this dynamic of prediction followed by fulfillment, I don't think I'd be a Christian. I don't think I would follow Jesus. But prediction followed by fulfillment has great persuasive power. Only God can predict and then fulfill on the grand scale seen in biblical history. Only God can do it. Some of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled were ones that he could deliberately choose to fulfill. We see that, for example, on the day of his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He made sure he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey in fulfillment of a prediction in Zechariah chapter 9. But there were other prophecies that Jesus couldn't control, looking at his life from the human perspective. To state the obvious, you can't decide to have a virgin birth if you've already been born. And your birth wasn't a virgin birth. You can't reverse engineer your own birth. It either happened that you were born of a virgin or it didn't. And in Jesus' case, it happened. We can be sure it happened because it's in the Bible and the Bible is the inerrant word of God. There are no errors in it. But the Bible is written by humans as well as God. It has double authorship. And when it comes to the virgin birth, there are human reasons for believing that it actually happened. In other words, a person doesn't have to believe that the Bible is God's inerrant word 
to believe that the virgin birth really happened. In Luke chapter 1, Luke says to his patron Theophilus, Since I myself have carefully investigated everything, it seemed good to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Carefully investigated, so that you may know the certainty. Luke was seeking out facts. Elsewhere in that introductory paragraph, he talks about the testimony of eyewitnesses. In the case of the virgin birth, Mary was the key eyewitness. We don't know whether Luke himself interviewed Mary, but we do know that Mary and some of Jesus' other family members were still alive in the earliest days of the church. Acts chapter 1 verse 14 says, They all joined together constantly in prayer along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. They were at those first prayer meetings in church history. Mary and Jesus' brothers who were conceived and born in the usual way. Now Luke was writing his gospel 30 years after those first prayer meetings in the early church. He was writing in the early 60s AD. But even if Mary and all Jesus' brothers were no longer alive by that time, there would still have been many Christians who would have remembered them and heard all their stories about Jesus, all their memories of Jesus. So if Luke had written fiction of his own devising, if his account of the virgin birth was a hoax, there would have been plenty of people still alive who would have said, I knew Mary, I knew Jesus' brothers. They never said anything about any virgin birth. Luke's gospel would have been discredited, but his gospel wasn't discredited. It was widely accepted as a reliable account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And the same was true of Matthew's gospel, which also testifies to the reality of the virgin birth. Someone might say that Mary herself invented the tale of the virgin birth. But Mary's integrity was at stake. She was living among a group of early believers for whom truth had the greatest value. Her integrity was at stake among them. If she had lived among them, living a lie, presenting a tale that never happened, well, it's hard to live that way among people committed to the truth. The sign of the virgin birth was predicted some 700 years beforehand, and then it happened. Only God can do that. Only God knows the whole of human history in advance and proves that he knows it in advance by fulfilling prophecy. And of course, only God has the supernatural power to bring about a virgin conception. Our faith in God should be strengthened as we consider these things. 
as we consider his knowledge of all human history and his power to bring about what he has predicted. So the raw fact that the virgin birth happened strengthens our faith. The second way in which it strengthens our faith is by supporting the doctrine of the sinlessness of Christ. The doctrine of the virgin birth explains how Jesus Christ could be sinless. Christ's sinlessness is an essential doctrine. He had to be a sacrificial lamb without any blemish. It was only if he had no moral flaws whatsoever, it was only if that was true of him, that he could serve as the sacrificial offering we needed, absorbing our sin, paying the penalty for it as he died on the cross. Forgiveness is offered through Jesus to all who come to him because he died as a morally flawless sacrifice. But if Jesus had been born in the usual way, born of a woman and a man, it would be very hard, biblically speaking, theologically, to understand how he could have been sinless. Let me read you a verse from Romans chapter 5. I told myself, don't forget to take your Bible up with you. And I forgot to take my Bible up with me. Romans chapter 5, verse 17, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men, because all sinned. Do you catch what's going on there? Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men, because all sinned. There's a line of sin beginning with Adam, the first man. And if Jesus had descended from that first man in the usual way, from his line, it would be very hard to see how he could escape inclusion in that line of sin. But Jesus was not born from a man and woman in the usual way. And you might have caught that in our first Bible reading this morning. Turn back with me, please, to page 7 in the service program. And Galatians 4, verse 4, on page 7. But when the time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under law. If you're not reading that verse with the virgin birth in view, it's a very odd thing for Paul to say. Why would he say born of a woman? Everyone is born of a woman. Why is that noteworthy? It's very noteworthy if you read it with the virgin birth in view. Because Jesus was not born into that line of sin from Adam downward. He was born of a woman only. That explains how he can be a man and sinless. 
a true man, a sinless man. Let's move on to the third way in which the virgin birth strengthens our faith. It supports the doctrine of the divinity of Jesus. It supports the doctrine of the divinity of Jesus. He was not only man, he was also God. Consider this. If Jesus had been born in the usual way of a man and a woman, we would have to see God coming into that and taking over a regular human child. But that is treated as a heresy in Christianity. It's called the heresy of adoptionism, God adopting a regular child. At some point, God would have had to take over a regular child. And so at some point, that being that person wouldn't have been God. That's not Christian truth. That would have been a heresy. But because Jesus was born of a woman who conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can see how Jesus was both man and God. Jesus was both man and God. The second person of the Trinity prepared before the creation of the world, to come down into the world for our sake, knowing that it would mean not only birth and all the indignity of birth and infancy, but knowing also that it would mean his death on the cross. The second person of the Trinity knew that it would happen, and out of his love, he willingly chose to do it. Hallelujah. Praise Jesus. Let's pray together now. Father in heaven, thank you for strengthening our faith. Thank you for showing us in your word how the virgin birth supports the doctrines of Jesus Christ's sinlessness and his deity. We thank you also for the raw fact of the virgin birth. It happened, fulfilling your own prediction. It is good, Heavenly Father, to have our faith strengthened. And remembering those words from Isaiah 7, if you do not stand firm in faith, you will not stand at all. We pray, Father, that you would help us to stand firm in our faith in your Son, Jesus. Amen.